Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. Music Is Life podcast, this is your host, Lou Mabs. Check out everything you need to know about the show over at musicislifepodcast.com. And this is probably one of the first times and only times I'm ever going to say the following. Greetings and felicitations, children of technology. That was good. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest is no stranger to the world of independent and underground art. He is the front man of many bands, including Carnivore AD, a band paying tribute to the tradition of the original and influential New York hardcore crossover band Carnivore, formed by the late great loved and respected and missed Pete Steele. At one point, the leader of Baron Misaraka's Vampire Lounge, a wonderful act where he performed the best of Frank Sinatra with a Bella Lugosi swagger. Motor Plasma, which performs the best of Motorhead and Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics, and his original metal project, Vasaria, which has been releasing killer music since the 1990s. He is also a co-founding member of influential New York hardcore bands Sheer Terror and Dark Side NYC. And when not doing music, he is a writer, having written the comic book In Flesh and Spirit. And he's here today to talk about all this and more, and we are honored to have him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our special guest, Mr. Baron, Miss Soraka. Get on with it. Thank you so much, Lou. The honor is all mine. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to uh, get together. You know, like we were saying earlier, uh, we've been talking about this for a while, so it's good that we're here. Perfect, you know? A- and it's a nice, dark, uh, rainy, dreary night out here in New York, so uh, yes, very appropriate. For, yeah, very appropriate for some of the topics that we'll be covering here. Yes. So, uh, How are you feeling today? I'm doing good. You know, keeping busy. Uh, it's it's always something. Uh, it's always something to work on. Uh, just trying to get everything done. Trying trying to meet uh, the deadlines that we have, and uh, trying to stay sane like everybody else. Well, I know you have a lot of upcoming projects. I can't wait to discuss them with you. If you're ready, we'll start with the questions. Sure. I was born ready. Nice. So you're involved in music and comic books, which for someone like me who grew up a fan of Black Sabbath and Marvel. It's something that I've always gravitated towards. What was it in your formative years that pushed you in the direction of music and art? Well, I would say a sense of not really fitting in, probably just being like a reject and, and a misfit. Um, even even as a small child, I never wanted to play sports. 
it bored me to it bored me to tears, and I just always gravitated towards uh, things that were extraordinary, like comic books and horror films. Um, I was a big comic book collector as a kid. I still got all my comics in storage um, in the basement here, in plastic. Uh, that's where I felt that I, that I fit in, uh, and not really what was expected for a little kid to be doing um, at my age. Um, it, it just enchanted me, and it was just. Uh, a world that I loved and I couldn't wait to, to get the next issue and, uh, you know, and follow all the stories and, uh, and see what was happening. And, uh, and luckily for me, my mother was very encouraging about that. And, um, she would bring me to the comic store to, to get the latest issues. So, uh, I was very fortunate to have, um, that, that kind of encouragement in my family. Uh, they saw it was something that I liked and I found myself in and, uh, you know, and they gave me free reign. Um, also, that's really what got me interested in reading as well, and a lot of other kids. So the notion that, you know, comic books are crap is definitely uh, a crappy notion. Uh, I always felt um, the dialogues in comic books are very sophisticated, right? And a lot of the characters are have scientific backgrounds. So, uh, so that's what spoke to me um, in contrast to uh, what everybody else was doing at the time. Although comics were more popular when we, when we were younger, but, uh, but still, it wasn't really... Uh, 100% mainstream. So that, that's pretty much what got me into that. And, and that's where I, I truly found myself. And um, similar story with finding music in heavy metal. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, yes, I would. Yeah. It's just a matter of looking for something else. You know, it's almost like what's out there. It's just not really, not really cutting it. That's what comics came in. That's what Black Sabbath came in and horror films and all that other stuff. And that's where I truly found myself and where I truly belong. And that, nothing's changed. Uh, Nothing has changed at all. You mentioned the word reject before, and I completely relate to that. And I can't tell you, I did go to one comic con in my life, and that was in 2016. I uh, took my niece for her birthday, and I even brought my wife, who was never a comic book fan, but you know, she ended up buying more stuff than I did. But I will say this: I love the cosplays. I mean, you know, got to give it up to all the people who do that. But it just kind of drives me nuts now that people who were never into comic books are now all of a sudden like diehard fans just because they know the films, but they don't know the backstories. And yeah. That's kind of how it is today. The kids are approaching it more now about the, about the films and not so much the comics where with us, it was the other way around. Um, it is what it is. And we're not a bunch of old men yelling at the clouds. People It's just, we grew up with these things. They were myths for us. They were folklore for us. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like the originals. I mean, I still think they, it was all done better in the comics, to be honest. Um, the films, they definitely have adapted uh, and changed a lot of things around. As you notice, like the costumes, like they, everyone's costume is different in the films compared to the comics. Um, I liked it better when the superheroes wore like, you know, tights with their underwear over it, instead of all the armor. <laughs> well, it was more visually striking in the comics. Absolutely. Yeah. It made, I guess it made more sense in that medium, you know, and they definitely gear it now towards a more modern audience. Uh, I guess the business is business, but, uh, but at least the characters are out there. At least Ant-Man has a movie, you know, and things like that. Who'd ever thought though, that like some of the more obscure Marvel characters would get their own films and just like, blow up the way they had you yeah, know? yeah i think that's great seeing the scarlet witch and the vision and especially ant-man ant-man is like the reject of the superheroes in some ways so oh, yeah uh, I well, all you him. know ant-man's cool so don't give me that yeah no he's very cool i, I can only hope to be as cool as him uh, uh at some point in time. <laughs> so uh it it's great to see it out there Definitely. But, but i am a purist and uh, uh 
I definitely prefer the books. I agree. Canon matters. Absolutely. But I'm a relic of the past. So, (laughs) you know, you look better than most people younger than you. So you got to give yourself some credit. So thanks. I try my best. You know, the vampire blood, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah the, the blood, the water. You know, I'm always drinking water. <laughs> Living, it's true. <laughs> Good stuff. You co-founded the band Sheer Terror at a time when the words hardcore and crossover were not in the lexicon of underground music. Hardcore existed as its own entity. Crossover came into play later on. Yeah. Nowadays, Sheer Terror, the Cro-Mags, and Carnivore, along with the Crumbsuckers and Ludacris, are considered the forefathers of crossover thrash. When you hear that, what comes to mind for you? It's a wonderful thing. It's great to be credited. That was a very incredible point in time for both the, the metal and the hardcore genres when everything kind of crossed over. So I'm, I'm flattered that I was able to contribute in, in, in my own small little way with Sheer Terror. I mean, I'm also kind of surprised. And nobody back then thought that we'd be talking about this all these years later, to be honest. It was a very in the moment kind of a situation. So, so it is incredible that, that it's all this time later and it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's history. And as I said, it's uh, I'm, I'm honored to have my own little niche in there and, and to have been part of something, to be been part of something great. And it truly was. I mean, that was a very special time. Uh, there was so much going on. It, the creativity was in the air. Like, you didn't want to miss anything. You know, I mean, you had the, the hardcore matinees um, at CBGB's and then Lemoore in Brooklyn had the metal shows. I mean, almost every night of the week, there was something happening. And, and I felt and a lot of other people felt that, that we had to be there. We didn't want to miss it. So uh, those days are long gone, unfortunately, but we're fortunate that we were there and, and we still have the records and the music lives on. And uh, that, that point in time really changed, uh, really changed a lot of things and really made an imprint on uh, all of popular music in general. So, uh, so it's great. Um, you know, part of what we do in Carnivore AD is almost a, is almost a tribute to that point in time as well. Uh, and being that we all came from it, myself and, and Chuck from the Crumb Suckers and uh, Joe Cangalosi from uh, Whiplash and Creator. So, uh, so we almost feel like we're kind of reliving the past a bit and kind of bringing it to the people that were there and wanted more or the people that weren't there and wonder what it was like. We like to think that we're bringing some of that back um, with what we're doing because it's, it's who we are. It's in our blood. So um, again, it, it, it's great that we're talking about this. It's the year 2022 and... Uh, and we're still talking about stuff that went, went on in those days. Uh, it was an exciting time. Um, it, was, it was just a melding of styles. I don't think anyone specifically thought out, had a blueprint for it. You know, we just brought different um, influences and elements into hardcore and kind of created uh, the music we would have most likely, we would have most liked to have heard. Um, and, and, that, and that's what it was. And in, and in turn, that created something completely new. So, uh, yeah, it's an honor and uh, one of the fondest uh, times in my life. And uh, I think I speak for uh, the other two guys in the band as well, Joe and Chuck. I think they would say the same thing as well. So, yeah, thank you for asking. And, and thanks to everybody for still listening and caring. What I love about what Carnivore AD does, and this is just from viewing the video footage, is that it's nostalgia, fan service and authenticity wrapped into one. You know, and that's something that me as a fan, I gravitate towards when I grew up listening to hardcore. Mind you, I was a teenager in in the 90s. So bands like Earth Crisis and Vision of Disorder and Madball, that was the era of hardcore that I grew up with. But uh, Stigman from Fury of Five made a good point 
years later on, after I had already discovered the hardcore of the 1980s, he said, know where your roots are from. So when I went back and discovered those older hardcore albums, you know, Minor Threat, Agnostic Front, Sheer Terror, Carnivore, I was, I guess you could say that I was like a kid in a candy store because, you know, I was consuming all this great music. And, you know, I had a, an older brother who went to shows at CBGB's and Lamore in Brooklyn and Lamore East on Queens Boulevard. And he would tell me all the times, he's like, oh, yeah, that was a great time to go to shows because you could see the Cro-Mags opening for Motorhead. You could see, um, you know, all these great local hardcore bands open for national touring acts. And he said it was a great time to be alive. And, you know, I... I think that's the one thing that I envy because while I admit that it was a it was a it was hard work and struggle and hustle for those bands to get to where they got, I I a question that I'm asked all the time is what era do you wish you could relive? And I tell them the 80s hardcore metal scene when it just seemed like everyone was having fun. Yeah, and everyone was. Um, I wish you could have been there with us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay you know, we I, mean, we I, I have a daughter of my own so i hope to uh you know i'll throw her into her first first mosh pit no i'll get arrested uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean we were there you know we started out as kids i was like 17 years old uh when i did my first show at cbgb's with sheer terror uh same thing with joe cangalosi as well and when he joined whiplash i think he was even younger than that um yeah so we were small we were about this tall we were small children uh Everybody was, you know, we were all just a bunch of crazy kids. Um, and again, nobody thought it would have would have skyrocketed. Nobody ever thought that you'd open up for Motorhead, you know, doing this crazy music. Um, and it was never really in the intention. Uh, there was really no commercial intention initially when all this was happening and the styles were combining. It's just like, this is what we were feeling and this is what we liked and that's it. So it's just amazing, you know, without that kind of... Uh, aspiration that it was able to take off as much as it did maybe that's why it took off as much as it did because it wasn't aspiring to be you know anything that totally successful or anything out of the underground um yeah but it was incredible the kind of uh shows that you would you would see and and the way they would mix up you'd have agnostic front opening up for slayer like you said the chromags and motorhead i mean the list goes on and on and on uh it, it, it was a great time to be there and uh we learned a lot from it um, myself and the other guys in the band and everybody else from the bands in those days. I, I always say the way that kids now have the, the school of rock, right? And that's how they learn to, to play in bands and all that. CBGB's was my school of rock. Mm-hmm. That, that's where I, where I learned. You know what I'm saying? So I'm fortunate that we had that. And it's, un, it's unfortunate that we don't have that anymore. Um, but the music lives on. Even if Definitely. you weren't there, you get the records and uh, it's the next best thing. I never got to play CBs or Lemores, but I did get to play the Continental. And for me, okay. that was a big deal because sure. it was cool seeing the the wall of the Continental and seeing who played there. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, like, again, as as a kid in his early 20s, I was think- I wasn't thinking, oh, my God, one day I'm going to be a, a rock star like these people are. But it's like to know that I shared the same stage with people that I looked up to as musicians growing up, it's like, wow, this, you know, I I can go to bed tonight happy, you know, that it was definitely a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, my sentiments exactly. Um, Having played at TVs all the time and Lamore and and even Continental. If memory serves me right, I think uh, there was a Dark Side show when I was still in the band in Continental. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it was was a golden time. It really was. Uh, And again, I'm just so grateful that uh, that I was there.
and was able to actually contribute a, you know, a little, a little slither of something into it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a great thing. I do joke though, that my first hardcore show ever was a motorhead concert at Irving Plaza in 99. And they said, how can you say that was a hardcore show? And I say, because the opening bands were Scarhead with Lord Ezek of Crown of Thorns, Hatebreed, and Dropkick Murphys. Now you tell me if that's not a hardcore show. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> that was the beauty of Motorhead. And I, I wear the ironic. I love it. I love it. That's a Motorhead England shirt, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. This is like got uh, one too. Quintessential uh, t-shirt here. You know, it's like mm -hmm. being a member of a gang. You wear this shirt. You know, it stands for it stands for so much. Oh yeah. You can walk but, uh, the street wearing a Motorhead shirt, and if someone else is wearing a Motorhead shirt, they'll look at you and go, mm, you know, yeah, yeah, this up in the air. It's great. Yeah, no question about it. And everybody loved Motorhead. That crossed over into punk even uh, and into hardcore even before, you know, the stuff that we're talking about happened. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, Lemmy even joked himself. He said if they all had short hair, they'd be punk, but they had yeah, long yeah. hair, so they were called metal. He's like, right, we were just right. rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, I read that, actually, yeah. And he actually considered himself maybe more of a punk than a metalhead, but it was just you know, the long hair and the beard or whatever, the facial hair. But uh, yeah, it's kind of cool because like Motorhead were disgusting enough for the punks to like it. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, it, it was as raucous as, as it could be and, and it crossed over even though they had the long hair and all that. So that, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Lemmy was dirty, but he was well-loved and he was British enough to be the uh <laughs> the narrator of Troma's Tromeo and Juliet. So that goes to yeah, show yeah, that's you right. what kind of guy Lemmy was. Dude yeah, was yeah. awesome. Extremely British. And he had that kind of British kind of class about him as well. But he also had no class. And you know what I mean? So it was a real <laughs> interesting uh, dichotomy with him. Um yeah, I mean he'll be remembered for generations to come and and, and he should be. Oh definitely. Uh, and we'll definitely get into motoplasma later yes. on. In the 1990s, you formed the band Vasaria, which released music then and is still going on today. Vasaria up until that time was far different than what was going on in the hardcore scene. What was the impetus for you to create something so original that was, for all intents and purposes, completely different from the genre of music you were associated with in the 1980s? It was just maybe time to try something a little bit different. You know, I have a lot of connections into the goth scene in New York uh, City as well. And that's kind of where, where the idea for Viseria came from. It still had still had a heavy edge. And the more current versions of the band that we do um, definitely have more of a, of a heavier edge as well. You know, I think once the 90s rolled around, a, a lot of the bands tried to kind of do different things. I'm including Pete going to do Typo Negative after Carnivore. Mm -hmm. You know, so everybody kind of looked to branch out a little bit. Um, I guess that was that was our version of it. And Viseri also featured Chuck Linehan, um, you know, from the Crump Sarkers and Carnivore ID as well. So, yeah, we just wanted to utilize uh, some of other influences still, you know, being true to ourselves. I mean, it's not that much of a departure, uh, to be honest. Yeah, we just wanted, And I also I kind of wanted to take things into a more maybe fantasy oriented kind of a premise, um, you know, where, where the, the horror film uh, influence and all that can kind of be part of the music. You know, whereas a lot of the hardcore stuff was all very street oriented and was great. But I kind of wanted to just, uh, you know, go a little here and there with uh, with my imagination a little bit more. And, uh, and that's where goth came in. Um, also, I think maybe there was a little bit of a lull in the hardcore scene during parts of the 90s. I don't know. Um, things were changing. Uh, so it seemed to be a good time to, to explore something else. And uh, and, and that's what that uh, that's what this area technically was all about. And the idea was it for it to be like a, like a sonic embodiment of like a classic horror film of like the imagery you might've seen in the thirties and forties um, from universal pictures and all that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, just to run with that a little bit. Uh, Cause as you know, I'm a very big enthusiast of the old films and, and things like that. And, 
you know, we've all come to like things that uh, weren't necessarily part of the hardcore genre or the thrash metal genre. And, uh, and that's an example of it. But, uh, but in closing, it's not that far off. So no, I agree with you. I remember in the 90s, that was a very big time for the goth scene, especially in New York. You know, you had Mike Hideous, I remember. An old friend of mine as well. Personally, I wish the Misfits had kept him. That's just my opinion. There was the Albion Batcave. There was the downtime. There was a lot of great music coming out. I mean, I remember all these things like yesterday because I remember going there on invitations from friends of mine and thinking, I'm like, don't know if I belong here because I admit I look more like a Poindexter than <laughs> a goth kid. But I grew up on music like Joy Division and The Cure. Although I'm a fan of the music and it's special for me, I think authenticity is really important. I'm not going to dress up like something that I'm not. To of course, others. But I will say that I was a fan of the music and supported it. And, you know, I support anyone's reason for feeling like that was who they were. I supported their reason for doing it. Yeah, right on. I mean, it, it appealed to a lot of different types of people. It wasn't like you had to be this, this kind of person or necessarily dress this kind of way. Um, it was an exciting time. And funny you mentioned Batcave and Albion. I, I worked there for several years as a bartender. Actually. Really? So, uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I probably so, met him. Met <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you might well, have purchased an overpriced drink from me, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, it was you? Ah, I'm just, I was just following what management told me to do. But That's um, okay, I owe you a drink definitely when I when I see you in person. No worries. But uh, yeah, no, that that was a great time in New York history as well. The goth scene was definitely very prevalent in the '90s and into the early 2000s. Um, so I de I definitely identified a lot with that scene. Um, and again, I appreciated the whole theatrical element and uh, you know and all that kind of stuff, the imagery that you saw in in, in the old films. So that was one thing that hardcore really didn't have too much. So, uh, so I definitely gravitated uh, towards that. And that, that's a big part of, uh, of who I am and what I'm into and what I've always been into. So um, that, that was definitely a golden time. Uh, that, of course, is no longer around either. <laughs> mm. That cave unfortunately closed down. Um, I was actually the last person standing. Um, I still stayed on after it was bought over by the Webster Hall people. Um, I guess I'm clinging on to like a past uh, glory or something. But, uh, but eventually that, that was it. But it, it's not totally dead. And I think uh, the Batcave and the Albion scene kind of broke off into a lot of little pieces. And you see a lot of little smaller events and uh, goth industrial DJ events, et cetera. So it's still out there. But, uh, but the way it was back then was that Albion Batcave was like this big chunk. And then, like I said, now it all just kind of splintered out into little different entities. So there are remnants of it. But it'll, it'll never be the same. Nothing will ever be the same. Um, Unfortunately, everything that we're talking about here is in the past tense. <laughs> I know, but my hopes are always that fans of the music will somehow converge together and build up their scenes again. Because, you know, yeah. with change comes adaptation, comes new beginnings, you know, and yeah, maybe no that's question about that. And maybe that's naivete or wishful thinking, but I don't care. It's got me this far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, right on. I totally agree. You know, and I, and I like your statement about, you know, being a Poindexter. Um, I was going to say, I mean, we're all Poindexters. I certainly am. Everyone that got into goth or hardcore, you know, is definitely a Poindexter that didn't fit in. So, uh, yeah. So, takes one to know one, you know? <laughs> right on. Exactly. Hey, if bands like Snapcase and Boy Sets Fire and Glass Chalk could have members that got away with glasses like this, I'm fine. So, it's all yeah, good. Yeah, that's cool with me. I got you saw my reading glasses. They broke and I have a piece of tape uh, attaching it together. The <laughs> Allen thing, I've, I don't, you know, I don't even know where they are. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, so, uh, you know, you know, but the glasses thing was cool. What about Buddy Holly? He started all that in the 1950s. So, uh, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. So this is go. true. Yeah. 
You're a good company. <laughs> I like it. You're one of the few musicians I know of that has written and performed metal, hardcore, dark wave, punk, goth. And at one point, you had a project called Baron Mizraka's Vampire Lodge, where you played classic pop standards. Most people have a hard time writing one song in one specific genre, and you've pretty much mastered many. For you, what's the drive to be constantly creative, especially in today's day and age, where in our home state of New York, venues have closed, pandemic restrictions are in place, Long Island venues only prefer cover bands rather than nurture new talent, and the return of investment for musicians when it comes to releasing music is not what it used to be. Well, the answer to all that is to not play originals anymore and play and play other people's music. <laughs> good night, everybody. That's it. We're good. <laughs> Drive safely, everyone. I mean, I mean, where I'm at right now, I'm I'm playing, you know, Pete songs, uh, Motorhead. I'm not really doing tons of original stuff right now by choice. Um, you know, the Viseria project is on and off. Uh, you know, there it it has its moments of dormancy. Maybe this is kind of one of those moments until we decide what to do next. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, in response, or, or ironically, in response to what you just said, that that's what that's how I dealt with it. <laughs> also, I mean, my case is a little bit differently. I mean, I've been playing original music since I was like 16, 17 years old. So uh, you know, right now, I feel like I want to pay homage to the to the people that I love, Carnivore and the Plasmatics and Motorhead. I feel like that's really what I want to do right now. Um, and you know, especially with the personal connection to carnivore and with the plasmatics as well, we'll talk about that later. So, uh, that, that's my personal choice right now, but it is hard, um, for originals and people respond, um, to what's familiar. So, but I mean, when it comes to original music, it's just something, it's just something you have to get out. You know, the drive will always be there no matter how unopportunistic, uh, things are at the moment. You know, that, that's how I feel. It's almost like something has to happen. You just have to get it out. Uh, so I, I saying all that to say that I, I think it, it'll find a way because it has to, you know, and if you really want to do it, you have to do it regardless of what, uh, of what's happening out there. You know, I mean, when hardcore first started and when we, uh, you know, we're, we're there doing all that stuff, uh, that really wasn't very encouraged. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? So uh, it, it, it always finds a way somehow. It has to come out. The lounge stuff, those weren't originals. Those are the standards. Right. So, yeah, I wasn't writing those at all. Those that were actually jazz standards. Um, but what I liked stuff. about that, and you could kind of culminate it with everything that you're doing, is that you always find creative ventures for you to release, you know, a new project that you're working on. And I'm think, I think it's really awesome that um, people have gravitated towards everything that you've done. So... Yeah, Luckily, it, yeah, it, it obviously God. shows that whatever you're doing strikes a nerve with people out there who are definitely looking for it. I'm very thankful for that. Otherwise, I'd have to get like a regular full time job. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And to me, I mean, uh, it could still be artistically rewarding, even if I didn't write the material. You know, that's how I look at it. You know, if I'm a writer for this and that, that's great. But if I'm not and I'm doing something that I love, that's great, too. And if it's reaching out and grabbing everyone, then that's the most important thing I feel. Uh, so it's, um, you know, I mean, in the early days I was against doing covers. I'm like, Oh no, fuck that. You know, I got into music so I could play my own music, which is true. But then with the passage of time and after doing, you know, original stuff for, for a long period of time, it, uh, my outlook definitely changed. Um, and I'm not just doing any, any, any ordinary covers. We're talking about carnivore and the plasmatics and, and things like that. So, uh, 
uh, it's just as rewarding for me, for, for my personal experiences. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to, I mean, eventually with the passage of time, you got to kind of reinvent yourself and, and flow back and forth into different things, I think. Uh, otherwise that gets kind of stale. So, um, so yeah, I think maybe that I felt that I needed to just switch gears, you know, and actually like, just like dive into the music that I loved, you know, and it's, uh, and it's been a wonderful experience, you know, just to, to get into their heads and learn, you know, what they're, what they were playing and all of that, uh, people like Lemmy and, and Pete and all that. So it's, it's really, uh, um, one of the highlights of, of my, my whole musical, uh, experiences to actually be able to get into those guys heads and and learn what they were playing and, and to reproduce it on, on my own so so for me it's great um music is music if it's great it's great regardless of who wrote it uh and that's it you know obviously the advantage of, of playing songs that are familiar is familiar is that people relate to that and they have a whole history behind that and memories behind that where they wouldn't necessarily have that if you came up with something new so um they're both great worlds um this is where i'm at right now uh and i'm, and I'm very happy to be doing it let's see what happens you know good stuff one of those ventures is also comic books recently you released a comic book that you've written with a character based on you and your image called in flesh and spirit that's right the character based on your likeness with the same name is a vampire torn between an insatiable bloodlust and a quest for redemption I wish I wrote this, but I'm like, <laughs> it sounds so cool. Oh, thanks. The, the artwork from Alex Horley looks like some of the best work done by a comic artist. And I currently saw that there is an issue available on Amazon and I'll have a link in the description below. Now Please. you have a new publisher, Hellbound Books, and you are now associated with Stokerverse, an association formed by the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker. Yeah. How, how did these opportunities come about and how do you plan on continuing releasing more music and horror-inspired comics? Well, I mean, to take it back to the beginning, the character is me. The character is called Baron Mizoraka. It's my autobiography. <laughs> um, the tale is that, Notice uh, he has no shadow behind him, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, you know, we were able to work, uh, make provisions on those things. <laughs> it's all an illusion just to, <laughs> to get everybody to relax. That's the... Uh, the true, strength, the, the true strength of the vampire is that nobody believes that he's real. So that's why I got to keep doing all these little things here to. Uh, to you know, I love fun. the fact that we could have fun on this show. I provide good entertainment, damn it. So essentially the premise is uh, my character was a, is a, a 700 year old um, vampire who initially was uh, lived in the Middle Ages and was a musician uh, commissioned by the church uh, who eventually crossed paths with them and, and was blasphemed and ultimately conjured uh, an evil entity, which uh, turned him into a vampire, long, long story short. Um, he retaliates against the church and is eventually destroyed by a rather sadistic nun and uh, wakes up uh, hundreds of years in, into the future in, uh, in New York City and Coney Island. So, um, you know, I mean, New York City and Coney Island are definitely good uh, backdrops for, uh, for a horror story. So uh, I definitely seized upon that. And, um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, but the character, as you said, is, uh, is torn. I mean, he has a conscience and he's, he seeks redemption and, and he's despised by what he is. Uh, I mean, he has to maintain this vile existence to survive, but he, uh, but he hates it. Um, so it's a real, uh, you know, dichotomy between the two things. And I guess it's an allegory about the uh, good and evil and man in general. Um, if you want to, you know, simplify it, that that's basically what this is a tale of. 
something I always wanted to do, and I did it. Um, initially, this project stems back to actually a few years back and was recently resurrected, no pun intended. Um, the book was initially put out um, <laughs> in black and white and happen to have it here. I have a lot of visual uh, aids here for this. This is how it was uh, initially put out. That's the, the phenomenal cover by Alex Horley that, that you spoke about. For comic fans, Alex is known for his work with Vampirella, Lobo from DC Comics, Heavy Metal Magazine. Mm -hmm. You could have like three shows all about his resume. And you probably I, should. I would love to. We just actually had Greg Hildebrand on okay. Radside Review. He was talking about his covers for Heavy Metal as well as the Star Wars yeah. uh, original poster that he drew. And of course, his most famous album cover, Black Sabbath Mob Rules. So right, yeah, that was really know. cool having him on talking about that. Wow. I'm sure it must have been. I got to uh, look look for that in the archive. If you have I'll that. send you the uh, link. Yeah, send me the link. Please do. Yeah, actually, the, both of those guys have a similar style. Um, I always thought there's some similarity um, in their kind of style, uh, which is a phenomenal style. Yeah, I mean, it was a tremendous honor to have Alex aboard with me on, on the project. Um, he's an old friend, you know, from the horror conventions going back to the 90s. So it's, it was a wonderful team, including uh, uh, an artist named David Williams, who did the interior, uh, which is phenomenal. Um, initially, the book was uh, was put out in, uh, in black and white intentionally. I don't know if you could see any of that here. That is really cool detail. Yeah, no, thank you. These guys did a phenomenal job. And we wanted to kind of pay homage to the old black and white uh, Marvel uh, comic books. Uh, if you're, I'm sure you recall Vampire Tales, Dracula Lives. Um, where the interiors were all black and white, or the old creepy and Vampirella comics. That was kind of the idea behind this. Mm -hmm. And initially, this was just put out by myself. And, uh, and actually, I had written this off as something from the past. But then during lockdown, uh, where we're all locked in our houses recently, uh, you know, during the virus situation, um, I received a, a message from, a, from an old online friend of mine, um, Chris McCauley, uh, who, who is a colorist. And he, he proposed the idea of, uh, of colorizing the comic book. Um, again, this was something that I thought was just in my past. Um, so he single-handedly pretty, pretty much resurrected that. Again, no pun intended. And um, he colorized the book, which I'll show you an excerpt. And then jokingly, jokingly, I asked him, oh, do you know of a publisher that could put it out? And actually, he did. And that was the first publisher that we released a book on um, last year. Now we've, uh, we're working with someone else. But here's an example of, uh, of the colorized version right here. Now, did he actually have to colorize every individual cell? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's insane. Yep. And he volunteered for it. Good man. Good. Yeah. Jeez. I, yeah, that honestly uh, has to be some of the best comic artwork I've ever seen. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, with a cover without by Alex Harley, the interior by David G. Williams, that I mentioned, and then the colorization by Chris McCauley. It's just incredible. And, you know, you know, we, we love the initial concept where it was like the black and white Vampirella thing, but, but having these colors in there really brings it to another level. And, uh, you know, the palette of, of colors was, was chosen out specifically by myself and Chris, a lot of midnight blues and purples and, and things like that. So yeah, a lot know, of texture in there, a lot of really nice hues. I, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, no question about it. So, uh, so, so that's pretty intense. And, uh, again, it was, uh, We'll spend a lot of time talking about Chris here because because uh, we have to in, in the comic book uh, situation, because, again, he single handedly um, brought this to life. Um, it's Chris that, um, that works with uh, and partially created the, uh, the Stokerverse, which is the organization um, spearheaded by him and uh, and Dacre Stoker who is the, the great grandnephew of, uh, of the great original Bram Stoker. In case you anyone know, so out there doesn't us. know who Bram Stoker is, you should. He's the man that wrote Dracula. 
Yes, who pretty much started it all uh, back in the late 1800s. Without him, there'd be nothing. <laughs> no, no, I would have nothing not. to say. Yeah, I would just be sitting here silent. Yeah, so he pretty much uh, even took that to the next level, and uh, uh, hence uh, the you know the Bram Stoker people liked you know what I was doing, and uh, I, I am technically a contributor or an affiliate or uh, however you want to call it. And uh, what we're doing now is we're reissuing the book again now. Um, in a more extended format with a new publisher, Hellbound Books, uh, with you know with a hardcover kind of a thing, and um, it's a, it's a reprint of the colorized version you saw there. And there's additionally some other um, short comic stories in there as well um, that Chris wrote, and uh, and and a, and a bunch of short written stories as well that are in there. Again, that that Chris wrote as well. He's also a writer, he's a colorist slash writer slash uh, video game programmer guy. You know, jack of all trades. So, uh, you know, I owe it all to him here. <laughs> so we're very excited about that. And Hellbound Books is the publisher, which um, is strictly a horror uh, publisher. So it's a great thing. Um, the new incarnate will be called uh, In Flesh and Spirit and Other Tales of Terror. And it's uh, a Stokerverse uh, production. So we've added a lot more to it. And then after that reissue, then it's finally going to be time to work on issue number two which is being worked out, uh, which the cover is actually being worked out uh, right now as we speak. Um, a different artist, an artist named uh, Ash Corvita, who's uh, based in Germany, who does some incredible stuff. So uh, we're looking forward to that. So a lot going on um, with this uh, moving forward. It's a real labor of love to put something like this together. And like you said, each little individual panel, I mean, it's just... <laughs> that, that, again, that is insane detail and I'm, I'm impressed and yeah. congratulations yeah. on Thank you. getting that association with the Sogaverse and Thank you so much. wish you all the best with that comic. I promise when you have a link for purchase, I will definitely grab one. So, okay. Yeah, please do. Please do. Cause I don't the, believe uh, in getting my shit for free people. I buy it. Right. No, right on, right on. There are still some copies available for purchase of, uh, of this pressing uh, from the, the, the previous publisher prior to uh, Hellbound Books, you know, that's out there online, but uh, uh, you know, very few left. And again, we're saving it up now for the reissue. So um, it's a tremendous honor to be affiliated with, uh, you know, with, with Dacre Stoker and the Stokerverse. Uh, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, as far as vampire literature is concerned, he refers to me as the Baron of the Stokerverse, which is a tremendous, tremendous honor and a tremendous title. <laughs> I hope I could live up to it. So, um, yeah, you're fine. You're good. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, you know, coming from the, the Poindexter kid that was the comic fan, you know, to this, it's really, uh, it's really something else. So, uh, it's a real labor of love. We all look forward to the next step. Uh, let's put it that way, you know, and it all ties into the music as well, you know, comics and, uh, this type of comic book and, and the gothic music and all that. So, uh, it's, it's another, uh, it's another vehicle for my, my conceptualization or something like that. Definitely. I can understand that. I remember when they released the soundtrack for Spawn for the film. That wasn't a soundtrack for the comic. It was for the film. But I remember I Earth at one point had the Dark Saga, which was completely based on the character Spawn. I think the first comic book to ever have a soundtrack dedicated to the comic itself was probably Witchblade. If okay. we're going far back, right. I could definitely see the association of music and comics and especially with what you do musically and what you're releasing in comic book format. No, it completely works. And uh I, I hope it's a, an eventual gold mine. I mean, that sounds great. As, yeah, yeah. Especially actually, with the affiliation. Sure. That's something that's actually being worked out. There are, there are pieces that I've composed um, as a soundtrack to In Flesh and Spirit. So that's, uh, that, that's already happening. Um, some like, you know, instrumental, like uh, creepy kind of, uh, 
you know, background music type of stuff, you know, that I, that I create all, all digitally here, which is a lot of fun as well. And then some, some more like industrial electronica kind of thing uh, that I compose as well. Uh, that, that's all affiliated to this. So yeah, so that's already happening. And the Just electronic that. thing was something that I, that I started doing a few years ago as well. So now it's kind of found its home now, uh, you know, with the comic book stuff. So uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's always something. <laughs> Definitely. It's, Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, The Timo Toki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Medium, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislifepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Mavs at musicislifepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislifepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsareview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. How are you feeling today? As he drinks, I'm sorry. I'm thirsty. Take, take two. <laughs> 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 all right, take two. <laughs>